We are now live for episode three of the First Strike Podcast. This is KYT. Just a reminder that our show is sponsored by Face Face Games, Canada's largest Magic the Gathering online store. Um, I don't think I mentioned this in the first episode, but for this show, we're going to have a recurring cast of characters, um, usually Doug and Rob. And we got Rob back this week. How's it going, Rob? What's up? Life's good. Um, and today, replacing Doug, who uh, happens to be way too sick to, to cast tonight. I, I was hoping, like, he was happy to take down Rob, and he was hoping to take down another opponent. And uh, But he called in sick. He called in sick. Maybe he was intimidated. He was intimidated by, by my friend Brian Gottlieb. Um, I just want to say a few words about him. Before a while ago, when before I was introduced to him, I, uh, my friend Joel Parody, he would talk up Brian as much as I would talk up Hain. Like, as much as I would say Hain was the best player that I knew, Joel would have similar words uh, for Brian. And Brian, um, I respect, I've talked with Brian a lot. I respect his game so much and his knowledge and just how he approaches the game. Um, what he's famous for, though, is, is a bunch of heartbreakers. He's, he's most known for, uh, we were together at Magic Origins. He lost three winning-ins at Magic Origins. So, Thanks for bringing that up again, KYT. Really appreciate it. <laughs> that was a huge heartbreaker. And the thing that I always give him shit about, whoa, <laughs> I just uh, dropped uh, the S from there. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> is uh, Nivmagus Elemental, uh, a deck that he managed. He got name dropped by Jerry Thompson at the PT for convincing, well, not convincing him, but like he shipped him the list. And Jerry thought, even after tuning and thinking that Jun was a terrible matchup, thought it was the best deck he could probably. Possibly bring. So here we are, Brian Gottlieb. How's it going? It's it's good. You know when I when I talked to those guys about that deck, I was talking to Cho about it recently. Josh Cho and, and Jerry, they still say it was a great deck for that tournament. They all did terribly, but they were like, "Oh, if Jun wasn't there, we would have done great." And <laughs> Jun was there in force, <laughs> and they got wrecked. But even even in the deck tech, he acknowledged that he faced a bunch of Jun. He lost, but he still felt it was a good choice. Um, it just didn't work out for him in, in terms of the matchup. Um, so, yeah, that was a brutal matchup. One of the, one of the worst I've ever played. It was so difficult to win. So, despite not the same, uh, not being a GP champion like Lombardi, I think you've come the closest to top eighting of PT. So that's something to me. I, I have nothing but respect for that. I was really hoping for you to to win one of those three matches. It was just a huge heartbreaker. Um, but this past weekend, you just went down, uh, continued the magic grind. I feel like from from my perspective, I thought you were on and off, but you were back on it. From, from what I can see, and you were playing at GP Denver. So what did yes, you bring, and how did you do? I, I went to GP Denver, and uh, I played Black Green Delirium. And I'll say more about that after I talk about how I did. I was off to a roaring start, 3-0. And then I went on Twitter, and I saw KYT already getting excited about my 3-0 start. He's like, oh, Brian's doing great, 3-0. And I'm like, dude, that's a little premature. And it was because I didn't win any games after that 3-0 start. <laughs> and... Uh, so, so I lost the two bad matchups, and then I was about to, to draw in round six, and I just scooped him up and gave my opponent the win because uh, I wasn't feeling it, and some of the conclusions I came to were not correct, and so I just cut my losses and salvaged my day at that point. Man, that, that sucks. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for <laughs> jinxing you. I had to. I had to keep the hype chain going. I thought. I really thought we were yeah. gonna get there. I thought in my heart. I thought we were gonna get there. Um, 
So the, the breakout deck, despite uh, Matt Severa winning with Mardu Vehicles, the breakout deck seems to be green-red Aetherworks, even though, again, Teamer Aetherworks by, by Steve Rubin made it to the finals. But when you look at both GPs, uh, the other one being won by Aetherworks, and then you see the SCG results, uh, both the Invitational and, and the Classic, but I think mostly in the Invitational, Aetherworks was, was performing really well. So my question to you, uh, start off with you, Brian, because you've just been playing uh, this, uh, this format at a competitive level, is Green Rat Aether Works the best deck in the format right now? Uh, for this week, it probably was. Uh, I, I kind of knew it would be everywhere, and my plan was to just overload on sideboard hate and some main deck transgresses, and I still had a pretty horrible matchup. One of these days, I'll play games before I show up at a GP and actually figure these things out. But uh, yeah, for this week, it's absolutely the best deck. For next week, it probably won't be, because that's just the way this format is. Things move very quickly. Um, but I, I wish I played Green Red Aetherworks Works this weekend. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that statement. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, I'm, if you expect a Green Red Aetherworks to be good, you definitely don't want to be on Green Black. That's kind of like bringing uh, Johns to a tournament where you expect to only play against Tron or something, right, <laughs> in Modern. So it's not exactly where you want to be. And, and I also agree with your point that, um, yeah, it probably overperformed this week because people were still on the high of green-black being great against blue-white. Um, but the metal seems to shift uh, big event to big event. So I would be looking for uh, something like blue-white or another aggro deck like uh, Iteration on Martyr Vehicles or something that's uh, a little more lower to the ground that can uh, get under green-red to kind of push it back out. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> the cycle starts again. I don't necessarily know that, that blue-white will come back. It's kind of not a real deck. I think the thing about blue-white, it, it has the absolute best nut draw in the format. And when it curves out, it's incredibly powerful. But on the whole, it's, it's just a bad deck. Like, it really is a bad deck. And, uh, I mean, I, I think the best solution would be what Severa did, right? Like, it's funny. I looked at all these aggro decks which splash blue, and for some reason I focused in on green-red energy, um, like the, you know, the Pummeler deck. Um, and being able to get blue out of the sideboard, but I totally just blanked on the Marty Vehicles blue splash because I had removed it from my version a while ago. That was a really good call. You know, really fast clock, good disruption. Um, that's why he won the tournament. Fair. I mean, the, the blue-white decks were able to push green-red out, or I guess Aetherworks decks out before. I think they yeah, can get through the green-blue Aetherworks decks, very different Aetherworks decks, and certainly not as good as the current green-red version. Uh, uh, that's fair. I mean, lots of people were playing Teamer. I mean, I know that like when Felix was testing for the PT, he had Harness Lightning and other kinds of cards like this in his, uh, in his deck. So, um, I think it was close. I agree that like the removal of blue completely definitely increases, uh, the win percentage for the Aetherworks deck for sure. Um, but I feel, I, you know, I, I feel like the blue white deck has tools available to it that is, you know, definitely good. Uh, against a deck that only has only plans to play a few threats a game, Stasis Snare, Declaration in Stone, uh, Negate, um, uh, I forget what that card is, Annul for Colorless Spells, stuff like this. Um, so ceremonious uh, Rejection. Yeah, Ceremonious Rejection, yeah, exactly. So uh, it can definitely play the game with it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how both decks shift, and if something new kind of, uh, you know, comes out of the woodwork there to be... Uh, uh, in the standard arena or not. 
But I don't, I don't think you can classify these new green, red Aetherworks decks as, as threat light. Like, certainly the old green, blue versions were threat light. They were kind of relying on Marvel. But look at all the threats that the green, red deck presents. It presents Chandra, which can win a game on its own. It presents Ishkana, which can win a game on its own. Uh, it's got hardcast Emrakuls. It's got the Marvel. I mean, this is a pretty diverse suite of threats they're presenting at this point. It, it's nothing like the old versions. Hmm. Uh, I just want to mention Okay, that. fair enough. We'll, we'll see. I, I talked to uh, Logan Nethels, uh, who is the, the cousin of Reed Duke, who's been uh, famous right now, at least in the MTGO world, because of collecting like over 33-something uh, league trophies. And he mentioned how like the reason it's gotten better since the PT uh, Green Red is because they cut Cathartic uh, Reunion and they cut the big Chandra. They really streamlined the list, and he feels that well, we, we all agree that's an insane against uh, black-green, but now it's, it's pretty good against uh, blue-white. And I'm seeing, like, I'm agreeing with Brian. Like, the way to fight that is either to go under by playing, like, these really aggro vehicle decks that can uh, punish them and then be able to have that last uh, answer, like Thalia, where, where you can just get that extra turn of attack when, when they have that small window to play a spider. You have Talia, just like how Matt ended up winning the GP going that route. Or you go maybe like super blue counter heavy. Um, Logan had mentioned like on Twitter that Torrential Gearhawk is a card that he's most scared of as the green-red Aetherworks player. So I thought that was interesting. So do we think... Uh, starting with you, Rob, do we think that the, the health, what do we think about the health of standard? Is it healthy? Do we, are we scared that it's too, you know, before people were scared of like, oh, it's only two decks. And now a lot of people are pointing at the GP results and say, oh, there's a third deck or, or, or a fourth deck now. Or, or blue-white has changed because it's, it's completely, it's now blue-white Eldrazi, it's evolved. So what's your take? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, uh, haters are going to hate, like, the format everyone was whining about, oh, it's a two-deck format, blue-white versus green-black. Okay, so what are the results in the last few weeks tell us? That it's not a two-deck format. And even <laughs> we have my colleague here saying that one of the decks that was part of that two-deck format is not even a deck anymore. <laughs> so um, that's how fast the metagame shifts, right? And that's really what Watsi wants to see uh, from Standard is people analyzing what's going on in the field, figuring out a game plan, and being able to come with a deck that can beat that game plan, right? So it really rewards metagaming. It really rewards understanding your deck and your ability to to affect what you think people are going to play. So do I think Sanders in a good spot? Uh, yes. Um, there's there's lots of reasonable decks for each type of playstyle, right? So Mardu Vehicles is an aggro deck. You have two good mid-range decks in blue-white and green-black. There's a bunch of weird graveyard decks that are kind of tier two, but like they satisfy the needs of those people that like to play those decks. And then you have that Tron-like list that didn't really exist because um, people didn't really know a configuration that was good given what came out um, of the results after the PT. But now that that deck has a list that, that can compete with the rest of the field, I think everyone kind of has a, a, a deck that is a, can be tuned to their play style which is really what you want for standard. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think we're in a good spot. I think they did a good job with this one. I, I can't tell you how much I hate this myth that because there's a diversity of decks in a format, that format is healthy. Like, yes, there's a bunch of decks, but gameplay of many, many of these games is being absolutely ruined by Aetherworks Marvel. It's one of the worst design cards I've seen in standard 
in years and years because let me tell you the problem with AetherWorks Marble. First of all, fundamentally, energy is too cheap. It's way too easy to get energy. In that deck, the things you want to be doing, finding lands, killing your opponent's creatures, they give you your combo. Like they just are handing you energy hand over fist. Way too cheap to get energy. Second of all, there's this problem with AetherWorks Marvel when it's in play. And it kind of presents these, these branching decision trees. And you're faced with situations where there isn't sufficient information to make the correct decision. Basically, anything can come into play off of an AetherWorks Marvel, especially in these new, very uh, like threat-diverse decks. So you're often presented with situations where you have to choose, do I attack into an untapped AetherWorks Marvel? Uh, do I you know, cast this spell this turn? And you're presented with situations where if they hit X off AetherWorks Marvel, your play is correct. If they hit Y, your play is totally wrong, and you can't win the game anymore. And... There just isn't enough information to make informed decisions. At least when you're playing against something like Collected Company, which had this random element, um, you knew you were going to see two creatures put into play. And you kind of knew what those two creatures could potentially do. They could block, they might bounce your guy, but it was a very limited range of options. Now, absolutely anything can happen off of Aetherworks Marvel. There may be an Ulamog, there may be an Emrakul, there might be a Planeswalker, and all these things present different kind of decision trees you have to go down. It makes it really difficult to play games. And, and not only that, but sometimes games are just over on turn four. Sometimes your hand is such that when presented with a turn four Emrakul, there's no way you could win that game in a million years. The game's over. Just scoop up your cards. And that happened to me twice in this tournament where just turn four, my opponent played a Marvel, and that was it. The game is over. We, we scoop our cards and move on to the next one. And that's not fun magic. That's, that's not a healthy format. That's not what I want to be playing for the next... What do we have, two years of Marvel now? That's going to be great. I can't wait for that. I hope they make some really good energy producers in this next set, too. That'll just be awesome. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of disagree with you that, that Marvel's, like, the problem. I don't think it is the problem. I, so it's a card that definitely, like, a certain subset of players wants to be able to play, right? Like, people get really excited about that kind of, like, flip foolish a coin. Players. Yeah, foolish players. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean... Me personally, I would not really play Marvel. It's not my style of deck. But there is a subset of the Magic player base that gets really excited about these kind of decks. These kind of like, it's really just like a, a green-red mana ramp deck. But instead of ramping, you have to hit this four drop that uh, simulates you ramping to, to 10 uh, mana, essentially, right? Um, so it's, it's, it plays very similar to Tron uh, in, in that regard. The, the problem with, with a deck or in this format is that these cards were designed in an 18-month rotation, right? So what's going to happen? They create this card so close to, to uh, BFC block, right, and, and Shadows of Innistrad, which have these two massive Eldrazi that uh, you want to put into play. So, like, what's the maximum amount of time this is going to be annoying in standard? Well, six months. And then Aetherworks goes down to hitting, like, which is pretty good, but other decks can hit Emrakul pretty quickly anyways. So if you're only hitting Emrakul, it's not insane. I think hitting Ulamog and all these other diverse threats like uh, Ishkana or whatever, it makes it uh, a, like a large problem. Like you said, it's hard to, hard to figure out what you're doing. Um, but now you have this extra six months. So did they kind of screw up and, and, and leave us there a little longer uh, than we want it to be? Yes, but does it... Does it cause this very exciting moment in the game for a lot of newer players? Also, yes. And I think what they're trying to do with Standard is bring new players into the game and make it exciting. So does Aetherworks Marvel accomplish that? I think it does. And I think it also increases 
the odds of these new players that are going to get excited by being able to cast Eldrazi ahead of curve um, into the game and give them a chance to actually win. When normally, if you're just smashing like green, black mirrors all day, the most skilled player is very likely to win that match uh, round after round. Or like these types of ramp decks that are just doing ridiculous things, uh, you know, it gives them a shot. I think that that's, that's fair. Give them an opportunity to win some, man. So you're, so you're pro-variance. I would rather these people go play EDH and leave me alone with my big boy game and they can go have fun somewhere else. But I'm looking to play real magic, I not mean, just spin I, the pro, dice. If you're not pro-variance, if you're not pro-variance, you should just play chess, right? Magic is a game built around variance. Your whole deck's randomized. You draw random cards. Every turn you add variance uh, into the game. I think it's fine for them to, ha- to have a couple uh, high-variance cards uh, each format. Sometimes they're competitive level playable. Sometimes they're not. In this cycle, they are. I mean, whatever. Stop whining and just figure out how to beat it. It's only good this week. I'm sure that next week someone will figure out what its weakness is. Well, hey, let's hope Wizards doesn't print any more powerful permanents, right? And that's not something <laughs> they do very often. So I'm sure the next 18 months will go just fine. If they top Ulamog, I'll be, I'll be on your side. <laughs> that is probably on the high end. I'll give you that. <laughs> Before moving to, to something else, I, I want Brian to clarify because we, we have a lot of blue-white players uh, in the room. Uh, why is it a bad deck? And, you know, I quickly read through Ari Lax's take. He says, like, there's, there's a lot of reasons for it, including it not having a mana sink uh, in the deck. Uh, can you summarize really quickly why you think it, it's bad? I, I think it lacks identity. Uh, I know that's, like, a really ethereal term, but... It's good for a deck to be able to present multiple plans, but it kind of has to do so. There has to be a common tie between those plans, right? And I can't tell you what the common tie between the blue-white plans are. Is it an aggro deck? Is it a control deck? Is it a mid-range deck? It's none of those things. Like it, it, it really is. It kind of reminds me of old rock decks, right? Where it's just like, well, what half of my deck did I draw? Because that's the game plan I'm going to present. And if you draw the wrong one, you're probably going to lose. And, and like I said, I, I think it's nut draw is oppressive. Like the turn one inspector, turn two copter, turn three spell queller, turn four Gideon, you're probably not beating that. Like that's insane. <laughs> um, but in the other games where it's playing a more measured pace, I, I mean, maybe it's just not for me and I'm being biased, but in the games I've played with blue white, it just feels gross. Like I'm not happy playing the deck. Everything about it feels off. <laughs> My, my experience is, is uh, definitely similar. I'm a feel guy. I like I like I like a feel for my deck. Like I like there's just like an intangible thing I'm looking for, and blue white does not have it whatsoever. Yeah, in my experience, in my my experience, grinding leagues to to a pretty good clip, I would say. Uh, I mean, the, the game does play differently when you don't have a good old copter turn two, where where I just feel like I can't lose, and when I lose. I sit there feeling really bad, as if uh, for sure I misplayed somewhere when I when I do Inspector Copter and I end up losing on the play, and I end up losing that game. I went wrong somewhere. So uh, you did KYT. You did misplay if you lost and you went Inspector <laughs> in a Copter for sure. So I, I, so I'm, I'm before we move on. I, I, yeah. I kind of want to disagree with you. So I think that it does have identity. It's like a curve based uh, aggressive mid range deck that gets to change the way it plays the game based on how its opponent is developing uh, their game plan. So, and, and because you're playing Copter, you get to have this luxury. So 
You can have hands that you're beating down and you can filter out the top end to put more pressure on your opponent if they're dirtling. If they're not dirtling and they're responding to your threats, then you can pitch your weaker cards um, to you know, to have more lands and go for a bigger mid-range game with Gideon and Avacyn and, and like kind of holding your spell quellers for key moments instead of just trying to continually temple your opponent out. So it, it, I think it, that's why the deck is good, is that it gets to switch gears um, kind of at will based on how it sees what the opponent's doing. So if you, if you need to temple them out with a spell queller and then Reflector Mage their next play um, and then just slam in Avacyn when they try and wrath you and then the game's over... You can if you need to just throw all your threats onto the board and continuously beat down with copters, reflector mage, a, a key blocker, and kill them. You can and if you need to go to the long game where you're only playing Gideon's, making tokens, and casting Avacyn's at the end of their turn, keeping Spellcaller up for very key threats. You can. Uh, I think that it's missing maybe like one, maybe two cards to be like very oppressive to the point where it's like the best deck hands down. But I think given uh, that it's all, you know able to kind of play the, both those roles that uh, it'll it'll be a it'll be a player for for the rest of the format for sure what type of cards do you think it's missing do you have an idea or is it just like a feel thing uh yeah it's just a feel thing so i think that like the fact that it's kind of jammed up on threes is a little weird it needs like a maybe like a kithian something like that like a one drop or like a, a hot two drop that fits the tempo of the deck like it it, it would be stupid obviously but if reflector mage was two mana uh, it would be a lot. It, it doesn't have to be Wait, Reflector Mage. Are you like, sure Reflector Mage would be better at two mana? Let's let's do some math on that. I, I don't mean I don't mean specifically Reflector Mage, but like if the slot that Reflector Mage is taking is a sure. two mana card instead, um, that's better. Or maybe like if Thalia, it was just a reprint of the two mana Thalia, that might be like kind of what it wants. It just there's it's just missing a, a, a low drop that's that's key. I mean, Mana Leak would also be a card that's. <laughs> Some of the best cards in modern. If it just had some of the best cards in modern, it would be a great deck. I mean, some of the best cards in standards in standard is the best cards in modern. So we're not that far <laughs> off right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, to that point, uh, another deck we should want this weekend is the uh, Esper Agro deck that I, I think like Jim Davis and some other people played it. Maybe Kevin Jones. Um, but it was the same principle as Severa's deck, right? Like quick clock, a lot of one drops and two drops, and then it has counter spells as backup. So you see whether that was a really successful strategy. For playing the fish game. Yep. Um, I just want to add a quick point. I think it's, uh, in my experience, it's, it's the two drop slot, especially a lot of people that uh, recommend that, like playing blue white, they recommend like siding out, let's say all your selfless spirits against uh, green black because of Liliana and stuff. And then that may, and, and you, you have to beat, in a lot of games you have to beat Green black temple wise, you have to beat them before they take over with with spider. Uh, uh, Iskana, well, I keep saying spider, I keep Ishkana and Emrakul. You have to beat that deck before. Sometimes you have to land Thalia and crunch them, and then it's it's you're in this awkward spot where like you're taking out some of your early pressure because of Liliana, and then you have this gaping hole in uh, in your curve. In, in turn two, you're not doing anything. Unless you have copter, and now they have answers like or rebuff. State. Rebuff's right. the other thing that you want to do on your two, but right. very inconsistent play. Rebuff, and then you just want to be adding pressure and then holding back. Like a lot of games comes down to the way I win is like putting pressure, holding back with Quellers or, or Avacyn, or just jamming. Uh, Gideon's the only spell that I can just jam without feeling too punished if they resolve Ishkana. But other than that, a, a solid two drop would make, it, would make the games a lot easier. Especially something that you know can can actually deal like Grim Flayer games are pretty tough. 
moving on to back to GB Denver, there was a lot, not a lot, but there's as usual after a tournament um, that is streamed. There's definitely some controversies from the GP and uh, on our Twitter account on uh, First Strike Pod. Vertical Magic wanted us to talk about one of them, and, and we'll go through a few. Uh, the first one is the uh, Seth Manfield against uh, Corey Buckhart uh, controversy a bit where uh, for, I think it's the last round, round 15, for the last round, Seth needed a draw to make top eight, whereas Corey needed a win. And some people are giving uh, Seth some, some heat for pile shuffling after every mulligan. And... Uh, Brian, I'll start with you. What, what do you think about the, the new pile shuffling rule that you can pile shuffle once, but after every like every time you randomize, you can pile shuffle once, whereas a lot of people are advocating maybe you should just do it once per game? Well, I guess there's two questions to unpack here, right? One is the rule. The second is the way Seth used the rule. Right. Uh, I would say the rule is stupid. You should be able to pile shuffle once. Um, per game, regardless of mulligans, regardless of whatever, one pile shuffle to count your cards, that's totally fine. Um, I, have, I have no problem with a pile shuffle to count whatsoever. Um, and yeah, that needs to change. But the fact is, that's the way the rule exists now. I don't think Seth did anything wrong. He complied with the rules. He pile shuffled once per game. Um, did he gain an edge from it? it? It sounds like it, but if you can tell me a rule he broke, then, you know, I'll go grab my pitchfork with everyone else. But <laughs> now, I, I don't know what he did wrong. I think you have to look at intent, right? And uh, I haven't watched the video with enough uh, scrutiny to really uh, think about what his intentions were. But if someone's able to prove, uh, and you could do this simply by just looking at past Seth Manfield matches, right? So if he always pile shuffles uh, when he mulligans uh, as part of his process, then I think it is very likely that he didn't do anything wrong. But if he rarely pile shuffles to never pile shuffles uh, when he mulligans and he only he either doesn't pile shuffle at all when he sits down at the table and just randomizes his deck with shuffling, or he only pile shuffles once to make sure that his count is proper, then I think it's pretty clear that his intentions were malicious, right? It's not like the players don't know how much time is left. It's also not like they don't know that, or that he doesn't know that a draw is good for him and a, and a draw is bad for his opponent, right? And when you're going into game three, uh, I think it raises a lot of concerns when stuff like this happens, right? So I think you might have an argument for slow playing if you can prove that this is out of his norm, meaning that he's doing it intentionally to eat up more clock, right? Um, it may be tricky to do that, but I think there's probably some witch hunters out there on the internet that have already put the data together if we look at it. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that there. I mean, I'm not sure if he cheated or not, but I know that other people have been, uh, you know, kind of hung out to dry publicly and even not gotten Hall of Fame nominations for stuff like slow play, right? So it, it is a matter that should be taken seriously, and I think someone should definitely look into it to make sure that uh, his intentions were, were all above board. Um, now, about pile shuffling, I hate it. I just, I hate pile shuffling <laughs> altogether. It drives me just completely nuts when people do it. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up you on your requirement of once per game. <laughs> I think that you should max do it once per match. Like, you pile, you have 60 cards, 
What about post sideboard though? Like yeah, obviously, you check your cards sideboard. Are it's out. fifteen cards. Okay, so my sideboard has fifteen cards. I have sixty cards in front of me. We shuffle them up. It's random. Okay, let's play. After I sideboard. Okay, so now I knew I had sixty cards in front of me, and there's fifteen cards in my box. I don't need to recount these sixty cards. I can just look at my sideboard and count fifteen. What happened that you need to recount the sixty? It's just madness, right? It's just like they're just wasting time, and and like I just I just. So many people want to stop draws from happening in the game altogether. This is the first step. Make wasting clock for no reason. Please, Wizards, please. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I think that's discounting the possibility of ever. I mean, you've never dropped a card while shuffling ever in your life. You've, that's never happened to you. And yeah, now, I pick you, it okay, up. you pick it up. When I drop it, I pick it up from the ground. <laughs> you never missed it ever. I, oh, I have. have. Oh. I, I have. <laughs> I'm willing to take that risk. <laughs> Are you for a top eight? It's, it's worth it. Yeah, I'm willing to take that risk in all circumstances, always, to save three minutes of my life every time we go to a game. Please. <laughs> I, I think one pile shuffle is fine. I, I don't think the outcome of tournaments is being dramatically altered by allowing that one pile shuffle. Maybe I'd be okay with just once a match, but regardless of this... I, it doesn't do anything. It just counts your cards. Yeah, I agree. It just counts your cards. But, I mean, that's a fine thing to do. And, uh, you know, we've all developed this habit and muscle memory of doing it in a, a group of piles. So let's just keep doing it that way. I don't need to count it into one pile. Give me my one pile shuffle. It'll be fine. But I, I still have a very big problem, I think, with going after Seth based on, <clears throat> excuse me, just playing by the rules. Uh, Intent is very slippery. I understand that slow play is kind of always about intent. It's always about intent. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's difficult to get away from. Uh, I know that, but... I'm not saying he should be banned, but I mean, I think we should know if it was likely that his intentions were malicious, right? Like, I don't think he deserves a suspension, probably, unless they can really prove that uh, he he was doing it slower than usual. He was doing it very slowly. In fact, I, I don't know that these are facts, right? Likely he wasn't. So I don't think there's anything really to be worried about. But I think that you with with stuff like slow play um, and these types of, of tricks that are very hard to prove, you need to start building up a case uh, when people do this stuff. That's how you, you catch people that um, take advantage of the system this way. And this would be maybe the beginning of this case, which, which does two things, right? So if he never does it, it's not a big deal because he's not going to do it again or it's going to be very unlikely. Or he does it all the time and he's going to get caught and then we can deal with it. Or he was doing it all the time, and now that we've pointed it out, he's not going to do it. In which case, that's also a good step in the right direction. So I, I think an investigation of this doesn't have any negatives, right? Um, is the only positive outcome that can happen. I, I'm okay with an investigation. I think you can look into it. I wouldn't have my pitchfork out yet. That's where I'm at. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Put, put the pitchforks away. There's nothing proven <laughs> yet. People like to lose it <laughs> real early in the process, and I don't think that's fair for sure. Yep. Um, the, the, the next one involves a Hall of Famer, Shuhei Nakamura. It's also an issue that actually Wizards, I think Alain Bergeau has said that they are looking into this. It's when Shuhei played, uh, he's playing blue-white and he's playing against uh, Ben Sek uh, in one of the rounds where Shuhei had um, seven lands. And to me, they were, they had, it was a pile of two lands and a pile of five. And then when he draws uh, for his turn, he sort of sh- shifts the, lands or counts them around and now he's got the piles and two piles of it's like one pile of three lands and another pile of four 
And when he's being attacked by Torrential uh, Gearhulk on the following turn, he goes for a stasis snare with the pile of three lands, and then he goes to cast Avacyn with the other four mana. And then now a lot of people will take issue that he caught cast Avacyn for four instead of five. Um, what's your take on the situation, Brian? Uh, so I have never heard anyone say anything disparaging about Shuhei's integrity. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. I'm not going to pretend like I know everything that's ever happened in history of magic, but I, I, I know nothing of any gripes with Shuhei. I've played Shuhei. I think he was in my interaction with him, particularly deliberate, making sure to work through the language barrier, making sure everything was clear. Communication was good. I have made mistakes like this before. I made a mistake like this this weekend. Uh, I, was, I was playing Green Black Delirium, and I was thinking on my opponent's turn about how I was going to cast Emrakul, and I'm counting my permanents, and I have a Liliana on two loyalty, and I realize I can minus the Liliana, and that'll give me the right number of permanents to cast the Emrakul. And my turn comes around, and I tap all my lands, and I go to play Emrakul. And my opponent goes, you can't cast that. And I'm like, no, I, I definitely have to write my permanence. And I count my graveyard, and oh, actually, I don't. And then I realized, oh, I meant to sacrifice the Liliana. I had thought about it, and then I went and sacrificed the Liliana, moved out with my Emrakul. Magic is an incredibly complicated game. There's so much going on. There's so many things you're thinking through. Without a past history of indiscretions, this alone, it, it looks really bad when you watch it on camera. Like, he's, like you said, he has a pile of three lands, a pile of four lands, and he taps those four lands, and Avacyn comes into play. It looks really bad on camera. But you have to give people the benefit of the doubt in situations like this without any past indiscretions. If, if, this, was, if this was Alex Bertuccini, get him the fuck out of here. I'm sorry, I swear. <laughs> get him out of here. I, I get really passionate when I talk about Alex Bertuccini, and I swear a lot. Uh, <laughs> but this is a different situation it, it's it's not the same guy it's not someone with a history there has to be room for honest mistakes in magic it's too complicated of a game and if every time someone messes up on camera we're going to hunt them down and call for them to be banned there's not going to be anyone left playing the game because shittier damn it, i did it again crappier and crappier players are going to get moved up to the camera and they're all going to make mistakes and everyone's just going to be out eventually so pump the brakes a little bit. This is a guy with a sterling record, a Hall of Famer. I think he made a mistake here. And uh, again, I'm putting the pitchforks away. All right. Chris Pakula and David Williams were definitely strong on, on tweeting about this. Uh, it uh, looked really bad. I, I mean, I don't, I, on camera, it it's, doesn't appear to be defensible. But people make mistakes, even great, great players. Uh, I've seen it many, many times. Yeah, so, okay, so uh, three things. Uh, the first one is I have swore less than both KYT and Brian today, so kudos to me. I'll try to keep it up for you. Um, the second, uh, to your point in your misplay at the GP, um, moving, uh, like having permits on, the, on your battlefield that are going to change the cost of other permits in your hand based on certain actions you take with those permanents is quite a bit more complicated and easier to screw up the sequencing of than counting two lands, counting five lands, deciding that you're, I guess, probably going to block the gear hog with Avacyn uh, instead of casting the stasis snare so that you can get in for four, right? Uh, I, I would assume it's his plan. And then stasis snare the gear hulk on the next turn, which is reasonable. Like, why would you not want to be up for damage? Um, and then changing your mind and deciding, like, actually, you know what? I'm going to stasis snare it instead. And then 
what, having a brain fart with four lands uh, and then casting a five cast permanent, you already, like, it looks like, I mean, I agree that it looks very, very, very suspect on camera because it looks like he already went through the process of, I can only cast one of these spells. Which one am I going to cast? I'm going to cast Avacyn. And then, no, wait, I'm going to cast Stasis Snare and then cast Avacyn. So that's the thing that's kind of weird. Now, I agree that people should also put their pitchforks away. <laughs> it's no cause for, like, immediate concern at this point. Watsi's going to investigate it. They're going to interview the players. They're going to talk to the judges. They're going to get the data about what actually happened to understand what was the intent. Is there a previous history of this kind of stuff going on? And if there is, they're going to take the, the appropriate action, right? I think that if there's no previous history of this type of play going on, then this is just another tick in the, okay, we need to start tallying this stuff, off, stuff up and winning it so that it, if it keeps continues to happen, we can take the appropriate action. Um, and if there is a previous history, then they're going to take the appropriate action now. They've already built the case, right? So um, I'm not sure what direction they're going to take. I think that the odds are kind of stacked against him because it looks <laughs> it looks real bad. It looks real bad. Let me um, point out a couple a couple other things real quick that for me personally would influence me to make this exact same mistake. The first is if he's playing Gisela in his deck, which is a four cost angel, which like I, I don't know about you guys. I think about magic in a very kind of blurry way. That's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> I see like blobs of color and I'm like, oh that's that angel. Like, uh, what's the card from Kaladesh? Fairgrounds Trumpeteer? Is that the one where you get, you get to draw a card for each plus one, plus one counter? No. That's the, that's the other one, right? No. Yeah, it's the two that gets a plus one, plus one counter when you get a plus one, plus one counter. On I registered that card in two different sealed decks thinking it was the one where you get to draw a card. The three drop, I thought it was the one where you got to draw a card. For whatever reason, they just, I couldn't separate them in my brain. So this is what I'm talking about. And maybe I think about magic uniquely and this doesn't apply to everyone else. But if I had Gisela in my deck, that would influence me making that mistake. The other thing is that Avacyn's a 4-4, and that also would trigger me to make that mistake. And I know that's crazy, but like these little things, when you're trying to think of so much with magic being so complicated, these are the things that make me make these mistakes. And uh, it's totally plausible that he could be doing the same type of thing. I'm going to tell you a little secret about Gisela that you may not know. She does not have Flash. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly might try and play with Flash. If I was in the Angel Hunt, Angels are sweet. I'll play with Flash. She, I mean, she, would, be, she would be pretty good with Flash. Good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that will wrap up our uh, GP Denver discussion. Rob, let's go straight to Modern because uh, some of us have, uh, well, Brian namely has an RPTQ to play. You just... I, I started the show with Brian having heartbreakers, but you just had a heartbreaker this past weekend. Talk a little bit about it uh, for us. Yeah, so um, I decided to play Abzan. As advertised from episode one, uh, I went 5-1 in Swiss. I lost to a friend of mine, Jamie Archdeacon, uh, in the second round. He was playing Amulet Bloom after waffling between Amulet and Abzan. I lent him the rest of the cards he needed for Amulet and convinced him that it was a good choice to play. <laughs> So then I get paired up to him, and it's like his dream match. I was like, oh, perfect, right? Die. Okay, cool. So uh, luckily I was able to pull out the, uh, the rest of the matches to go X1. I had some pretty ridiculous games where I needed to feign, like, three Dark Confidant uh, reveals, plus my opponent's playing Bolts, and they also need to not draw Bolts for three turns in a row. 
uh, in multiple matches for me to get there. So yeah, I was kind of lucky to have been in the top eight anyways. Um, but I guess my run goods were stopped early because uh, I finished third and Jamie finished sixth <laughs> after drawing in. So I get paired to him again in the top eight. I crush him game one as he's playing like kind of loose and seems to be a little sleepy. I have hope now that I can win. Uh, he draws the nut in game two and I maul and don't do much. Uh, I mull again in game three, but my hand's pretty reasonable. I strip him of his threats early, present down some uh, some goys and, and confidants to, to kind of start the beatdown with, um, and he just rips like Titan after Titan after Titan. I'm not talking like Summoner's Pact, go get a Titan, then like a turn later play another Titan. No, just like Titan, cast a Titan, draw a Titan, cast a Titan, draw a Titan, cast a Titan. <laughs> I dealt with the first two. It was over after that. So, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not making a PT Dublin, it seems. Uh, I don't plan to go on any GPs from now until then. So, looks like I'm out on that one. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that at least the win went to someone uh, that I'm close with in the Hamilton crew. And I hope he does well at the event. All right. All right. So, fresh off just playing this format, our topic for this segment is modern, influenced by Brian, by the way, is modern the worst <laughs> format of all time? No, EDH is the worst format of all time. That answer is very easy. Um, I think this iteration of Modern is actually very good. And sorry for taking the reins here. I'm starting this one off. <laughs> um, you know, right. You have an impossible argument to make, so you may as well go first. Uh, yeah, <laughs> destroy me later. So um, I think that like the format's good because uh, the RBTQ was, and I'm going to say this again, you didn't agree with it in standard, very diverse. So people got to come with decks. That they that aligned with their playstyle, right? And everyone had a shot. I'm pretty sure, as the results will show when uh, Kelly finally posts the uh, top eight decks from the face-to-face RPTQ uh, yesterday. Every deck in the top eight was different. So there were control decks, there were mid-range decks, there were combo decks, there were aggro decks. So there was a little something in there for everyone. Uh, does it make it very hard for the elite? Uh, Magic players to do well at events consistently. Yes. Am I completely fine with that? Absolutely. I mean, people complain when the format only has three decks or one deck and it's just completely dominated. Then people also complain when the format has 12 decks. Like, where is the happy medium? I'm not, I think people are just complaining to complain and I'll let Brian have it go. <laughs> so, we do agree somewhat. EDH is the worst magic format of all time. Modern is the worst competitive format of all time. Uh, if they ever upgrade EDH to a competitive format, then we might, uh, might find common ground. But, so Modern is so sideboard dependent that I, I don't know how people appreciate the game. So many games come down to, did you draw your sideboard hate? And then, like, you play these weird bastardized versions of the matchup post-board, uh, you know, things like playing against Affinity with Stony Silence, playing against Dredge when you have Leyline in play, and, like, they're trying to cobble together these awkward beatdown plans. So, so that's one horrible, horrible aspect of it. The other is that Modern has the illusion of close games but many times games are decided on turns two or three and there's this kind of snowball effect in the early turns between Thoughtseize, inquisition uh a rush of gataxian probes and you know presenting a five five on turn one via death shadow and, and things like that where the quality of your opener is actually dictating the game even though that game may continue for four or five turns 
Um, but it was it was actually decided as soon as you drew your openers and like you know your first few cards off Cataxian Probe. Um, and then there's the games that are just over on turn two, like stupid things like oh Amulet Bloom Nut drew me. I mean I guess they don't have Bloom anymore, but you they know, can they, still nut draw you. They can still nut draw you. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, I got Goro's Vengeance out on turn two, or Dredge had forty power worth of guys on turn. Like all of these things happen fairly regularly. Death Shadow is a very clear turn two deck. Like what happened to this turn four principle that they were supposedly going by and all these combos that got the axe because they were violating it well what about all these other combos and even if they aren't actually closing the game on turn two they're closing the game on turn two like if if you're playing a game one against dredge and they present 12 toughness or 12 power on turn two they won the game on turn two even if it has to go for four or five more turns like it's just an inevitability and so you're right that the best player can't expect to win in modern because you have the sideboard factor, you have the variance of these nut draws, you have the games that are decided early on. When there's a great game of modern, it can be a great game. I will 100% concede that point. I've played amazing matches of modern where I'm like, wow, that was really a sweat. You know, we both made some really uh, complex decisions and, and thought about a lot of different things. But it happens so rarely, so rarely that you get those games of modern that uh, at this point... I don't know what the guiding principle is for the format because this whole turn four format thing is complete farce. It's out the window entirely. Um, control doesn't exist, which is an archetype I really like to play. I, I don't disqualify formats based on the absence of control, but modern just never feels right to me. It, it never feels fun. And like I said, you get that one game of modern and, and we're all like, I'm not, but people who are supporting modern are tricking themselves based on these amazing games that they go, they look back on and remember, and they forget all the games. They got blood mooned out on turn two. They got, you know, stormed out on turn three. They got dealt 40 damage on turn. Like all these things are just forgotten about. Infinity games where they vomit their entire hand onto the table. Like, is this really the type of magic you want to be playing for your shot at the pro tour? I, I don't, I wish old extended would come back. I loved old, old extended. There were some great, great, old extended formats even the ones that were a little degenerate like the the thopter uh hex mage depths format that was a great <laughs> format those games were super they, they felt more like legacy games and modern games they don't feel like legacy games they feel like they feel like degenerate pauper games actually if you ever played pauper back in the day before they did like a, a wave of bannings that's exactly what modern feels like to me yeah so i mean is modern maybe like a half turn too fast possibly does something need to get banned or unbanned i mean yeah maybe they they could definitely slow down a little bit but the thing is like all these decks that kill you quickly uh like that are just going to outright kill you you can interact with them and like no game i played uh the whole weekend and maybe it's because i was playing obzon was like over by turn two um it was definitely like going into turn seven eight 10, 15, like there were some very in-depth games where both players on both sides of the table had to make, you know, correct decisions <laughs> turn after turn. And it wasn't just like, uh, Amulet, uh, Bounce Land, Summer Bloom, Titan, kill you. <laughs> or like, uh, Faithless Looting, Discard, Grizzlebrand, Goro's Vengeance, kill you. Um, so I, I think that those decks now that exist like that, that can do that, they can do it very inconsistently, and I think that's fine. If you start trying to, like, ban all those decks that are inconsistent with turn two kills, then you, you get a very weird-looking ban list. So I'm fine with them leaving it like that. And people have fun playing those decks, and those decks don't win a lot. So ha have at her, uh, kids. Like, you know, go nuts with these combo decks that go off once every uh, 20 games. Um, now to your comment about the, the sideboard. Yeah, so Modern is about the sideboard, and I think that that's actually a feature 
of the format. So as you have a card pool that continually grows and grows and grows, it's harder and harder for new cards to affect that card pool. Like I, we're probably in agreement on that, right? Sure. Um, unless they start printing more and more completely bonkers power level cards in standard, which is not something you also want to see. So how do you keep what should be a stale format because not a lot of stuff is really moving around rotating? Well, you make it so that people need to actually shift their metagaming plans based on what other people are sideboarding against. So Dredge doesn't show up for a, a few weeks. Well, rest in pieces come out. Stony silences come back in because Affinity's hot. And then, you know, someone's like, hey, I've noticed that, like, all of these white-based decks are, like, only running one rest in peace or one spell bomb. I'm just going to play Dredge. They come and they crush it. Uh, Affinity gets wrecked because everyone's prepared for them. And then the format shifts. Rest in pieces and, and, and spell bombs come in, and you see the stony silences cut back. The ancient grudges cut back. And then two weeks later, now Affinity's the best deck. And that's how you actually give the allure of rotation to a non-rotating format. And I think that they need to leave it that way to keep it interesting at the store level. Otherwise, you just have people bringing their Jun deck every week versus Burn versus, you know, whatever the best combo deck is. And that's the format. And so that's I, not I, have to, spot. I have to interrupt you for one second because you're so close to being right. And I'm going to give you the little boost that would make you 100% right. Is that if old style PTQs still existed, your points are so great because you have your, you know, for us, it was the Northeast meta. and it was the same guys shaping the Northeast meta every single week. And you could see the format move exactly like that through the PTQ season and making the correct decisions for that week of the PTQ season, putting you ahead of all the people you knew would be there was exactly what you had to do. And yeah, that, that made sideboarding great. It made all these decisions interesting. Now it's a complete and total crapshoot. I have literally no clue what's going to show up at this RPTQ next week. I don't think you can... I don't think you can glean it from Moto results. I don't think I can glean it from other RPTQ results. It could be absolutely anything. And there's, there's really no way to get ahead of that. Like, do I bring seven dredge hate cards? Well, if I was uh, in the Utah PTQ, I was correct. If I was in Kansas, I was wrong. And if I was in Massachusetts, it was a so-so call. Like, that's really what it's going to come down to. It's where you're at. Did you make the right gamble, the right guess? you don't get that week-to-week metagaming information that you used to get under the old PTQ system. So if the old PTQ system was still around, I would 100% agree with you, and I think there would be an interesting aspect of modern. I think as it stands now, the way modern is played, that's not the case whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's very hard at the RPTQ level to do that. Um, But if you think about what the LGS tournament scene looks like on a week-to-week basis, you do have people bringing the same strategies. Like, oh, there's Tim. Tim's the affinity guy in our shop, right? So you know Tim. You know Tim likes to play affinity. Uh, is, is that what we're planning for, though, where we're making competitive formats that are being played at the GP level? No, and it, that are it makes, PT no, no. Relax, relax, relax. It makes Tim not play affinity every week because when Derek gets sick of just losing to Tim – uh, even though he's a white-based control deck every week, he's going to jam four Stony Silence or some wear and tear or whatever in his, in his board, and he's going to crush Tim. And that'll make Tim have to adapt. So it's like, okay, screw you, Derek. <laughs> I'm going to bring Derek something that beats you. Like, go play EDH, deck. guys. Like, I'm honestly, just saying, this is I mean, you, have, you have to keep the tournament attendance at the LGS up, or else the entire system falls apart. So does this do that? I think it does that. 
Can we do better? Yes, we can always do better. But is Modern in a good place for the local tournament scene? Yes. Is it hard to do well at very competitive events? Yes. Just play well, play good decks, and you'll have a fine record. Sometimes you get wrecked. Sometimes you play Amulet Bloom twice in the same tournament to the same person and get blown out. But that's that's how the cookie crumbles. <laughs> I, I think we probably agree more than it sounds like. It's just that I, I don't care about LGSs whatsoever. Like, there's not, I don't go to an LGS. I don't play in an LGS. That's not important to me. And that's completely self-serving. But that's where I'm at. I, w- I want a good RPTQ, and I'm not going to get that out of Modern, and that frustrates me a lot. Yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a fair uh, stance to have, given your priorities. Uh, Brian, knowing that it's going to be hard for you to make a game this weekend, uh, for listeners, is there maybe one or two decks that you have in mind that you're going to probably play? So my thing with Modern has always been, well, almost always been to just do broken things. Uh, going back to Niv Magus Elemental, which, which was like <laughs> the fastest deck in the format when we built it. Broken. Yeah, broken. <laughs> Can you still play it? Can um, we still play this? <laughs> I, I always try every now and then. It never works out. <laughs> so... You know, one of my big successes in Modern was with Ad Nauseam. I had a really good Pro Tour showing with Ad Nauseam, um, which is a deck I like. But, like, with Infect being around, it's not really a good choice. Um, I guess if you were asking me, like, what the baseline most powerful decks are, I would say Infect, Death Shadow. If there's a deck that people are most likely gunning for this weekend, it's probably Infect. I mean, maybe like Dredge is another one that people are specifically thinking about. What am I going to play? I'm probably going to do something stupid and play like Jonder Abzan, which completely <laughs> deviates from my principles. But like, I feel like I'm better than most of the people I'm playing against. So I want to leverage that. I think that's my best chance to do so. But I also accept that I could just be making a total mistake because you should be doing broken things in modern because there's a lot of broken things to do. I just don't love any of them. There's inconsistency problems like Rob mentioned. Um, I, I think Infect's probably pretty consistent, but I'm worried about targeted hate. So I'll have to get back to you on what I end up doing, hopefully with a victory celebration. But oh, Yeah, okay. Hopefully KYT, I... K- KYT it's, it's clearly Eldrazi Tron. That's <laughs> clearly the deck you should be playing. I, I don't think it's close. I think the deck's completely insane in playing it online. Uh, it doesn't lose to anything except for the decks that completely crush it. So, I mean, that's where I'd be. No, but, but seriously, so I, I think it has some valid points. Um, I, I can tell you that... Like, from my experience at the RPTQ, uh, people did, like, so Death Shadow Zoo, in fact, these types of linear aggro decks were, uh, did have the targets on their back. People came prepared at the RPTQ, and those decks got completely crushed. I mean, I was completely prepared for it. I was playing uh, one Slaughter Pact and three Blessed Alliance uh, in my Obzon list between my 75, and I played Blessed it. Blessed Alliance seems great. It's just, it's bonkers, and it's, it's fine against Burn, and yeah. it's good against, like, like whatever, Nahiri, Emrakul decks, the Grizzlebrand deck, whatever. It, it has reasonable game against a lot of other matchups that's incidental. So um, I, I'm a big fan of it. it. It definitely overperformed. I played, in fact, two or three times, and I, I crush it every time. Uh, not close. And, and that's, that's the preparation. And I based playing Obson on the fact of our first discussion where everyone thought Infect was good. So maybe to your earlier point, I think that you can do a little bit of metagaming if you, if you kind of really pay attention, try and get like your very, very small edges. If you listen to what the whispers of, of people uh, think is good, a lot of the RPTQ circuit is going to listen to what the pros think the best deck is. Um, and, and I think if you position yourself good against those decks, I also played two NFNs in main, and that that's card is great against Affinity and... Uh, and Dredge, so, yeah, I don't know. I'll give you my list if you want to play Obstacle. Yeah, shoot, shoot it, it definitely, definitely take it. Oh, my God, that would be sick. Pretty, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty sweet. 
it, it, it'll be sick if Brian wins it with uh, with Gillis Rob. Uh, moving, <laughs> no, are, it won't be sick. Carrie Towel feels so bad. I'll be happy for you, but I will personally feel so bad. Anyways, <laughs> I'll still hate modern even if I win though. So. <laughs> We got to the last topic while well, we, we jammed a lot uh, into this episode. Uh, thank you so much, Brian, for, for being on. Uh, Brian, you put this, uh, again, I attribute this to, to you. Um, Wizards has been trying to, to push Magic, and this has been discussed a lot, uh, as an eSport. And uh, there's been a lot of debate of if it's, uh, number one, if it's possible for them to do that, and number two, what are the changes and steps that, that you think they should take to make it as successful as possible. So let's start right away with you, Brian. Yeah, so I, I could probably talk about this topic for 10 podcasts in a row. Uh, it's something that I feel really strongly about. It's something I think they've really dropped the ball on and need to pick up their efforts. Magic can succeed as an esport 100%, but it cannot do so under the current framework, and there has to be changes. And a lot of these... Uh, are derived from other successful esports, just looking at the way things have gone um, for them. The first thing I would say is that the concept of the Pro Tour predates the concept of esport, right? Like we've had the Pro Tour for many years now, whereas esports is kind of a new thing. And I don't think that it really lends itself to the best possible esport. And if you want to be an esport, changes have to be made. And the first change that I would propose, which is, is really dramatic, and actually, I don't know if I would have ever played a Pro Tour if this was the case, because my motivation for playing Pro Tours was that I wanted to travel. And I think you have to think about putting the Pro Tour in one location consistently. What that allows you to do is do a lot more with your stage setup, with your uh, infrastructure. You know, you have tables set up which have like the poker cams where you see every single draw a player makes. Things like that are much easier to do. If you're in one central location, you could set up a crowd, you know, there could be an actual arena, all of these things, which you see things like, you know, my favorite esport is League of Legends. I watch a ton of specifically Korean League of Legends, but they, they play in the same place all the time. Despite the fact the game's contained on a computer, they can literally carry the computer to anywhere in the world and play the game, but they play in the same stadium. And there's a reason for that. You get all these infrastructure things. So that's, that's my number one. My number two, get moto to work. Like that, this just seems obvious. Like have a good moto that looks good that you can present, and you can move pro tours to moto if moto is a good program. Now we're miles and miles away from that, but if you're serious about Magic succeeding as an esport, well, get your electronic platform to work. That seems like a no-brainer. And you know, I, I don't know the reason why this isn't addressed. I have a lot of theories. I, I think there's probably like server issues and internal things going on. But like, if you get this taken care of, it does so much for magic as an esport and when you can move to the you're having your online program as your pro tour platform it, it changes everything and then the third thing and like i said i could go forever but these are just the three i want to present right now i love marshall sutcliffe i think he's a great guy i i think gabby has done a really good job in her time but these are not professional level players and if you look at other esports almost invariably the other commentators are absolute top of the game players. They know the game inside and out. They can play on the highest level. I, as like 
I mean, I would put myself somewhere above like Marshall and Gabby, somewhere definitely way below the top tier. I miss so much when I'm watching a game of Magic, and I know that, and I accept that. That's one of the things I love about Magic is that it challenges me all the time, and I, I love that after all these years, I still miss so much. But <laughs> you can't have that out of your commentators. They have to be the best in the world. Absolutely. They have to be among the, the absolute elite. They have to know everything that's going on. That, it has to be their job. It has to be their full-time job. And you know, along, people, along with people who need to have this be their full-time job, judges. I mean, we've had issues with judges recently. I think you guys talked about a judge call last week. Um, the judges need to be professionals. And I realize as you get higher up the judge ladder, they are closer to professionals. They don't need to be close to professionals. They need to be professionals. This needs to be taken care of. And, you know, this is one of those things where if the Magic Online platform worked appropriately, we could get rid of judges and this wouldn't be an issue. But, you know, these are just some of the infrastructure things that have to change for Magic to succeed as an eSport. As it is now, it will not succeed, succeed as an eSport. You can't keep presenting the same GP coverage, the same PT coverage. It's not going to go anywhere. The other thing, like a proprietary platform for watching Magic, I think would change everything. If you could... You know how Wizards now displays uh, cards in hand. If you could hover your mouse over those cards in hand and actually see a description of the card. Sometimes when a new set comes out, I don't even know the cards by name. That doesn't do anything for me. And I'm you know, a pretty knowledgeable player. So I can only imagine for someone who's trying to become interested. And, and let me tell you something. The background for all this stuff and making it accessible to the watcher, I had never played a game of League of Legends until I started watching it as a sport. I, I watched way more of it. And then I started playing. And I play a lot now and I really enjoy it. But I, if it wasn't accessible as an eSport, I would have never gotten into the sport. And this is how Magic can grow, not only as an eSport, but as a brand and as a card game. And I really hope these things happen in the future. But the attitude needs to change for it to succeed as an eSport. Wow. That seems like so thought out. Like you, you, I, I'm telling you, I could talk about this for, I've thought about it so much. And it, it's something that matters to me. I mean, Magic, I've been playing Magic for 20 years now, right? And I love Magic. I think it's the best game ever made. I, I want to see it succeed, even for all the bitching I do about it. I, I really do love it. And I want everyone to love it and get to experience it. And it frustrates me to see how it's been kind of fumbled along here. Yeah, I, I agree. I think your arguments were well thought out, which is why I'm super excited to tear some of them down. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, we can agree on one thing at least, for sure. Uh, I think that Magic as an eSport is kind of a stupid idea given what we have uh, in current day. It's not satisfying the same requirement that the other games are doing. And a suggestion, actually, where... You know, just having like some applet that's attached to the uh, Twitch or YouTube uh, channel, I guess it's going to be Twitch only now, um, yeah. that you can hover over to see the cards in hand or cards on the battlefield um, is actually a really sweet idea. And it's probably something that uh, takes it to a level where you can start thinking about like actual tabletop meets digital media hybrid, which, um, you know, we don't really have there. So uh, me being a... a a software designer <laughs> uh, in the high-tech industry, that, that kind of has me uh, thinking, and I, I think that's a fair suggestion. So now, uh, now that I've agreed with you, let me disagree with you. So, uh, is Moto the way to go? No, I don't think so. So yes, the program sucks, but that's not why uh, it shouldn't be the primary way to view Magic content as an eSport. Um, I think that Magic is complex enough that when someone does something incorrectly and you can walk it back, uh, in real life and you can't in moto it's very annoying and for someone like you who didn't want to hinge your pro to top eight chance on the fact that you might have 
dropped a card while shuffling. I'm surprised that you want to put your faith in a digital platform where like if you hit F2 incorrectly or you clicked on something uh, that you didn't or your hands moved and you hit a key uh, that you didn't mean to, they're like not, <laughs> you might just be like right through your first turn without playing a land, which I've done many, many times in Moto Isle. So this is a fair point properly. too. This um, is a fair point. So I, I think that that's a problem. And I think that like people don't maintain their moto collection like they do their real life collection or like on average, most people don't do that. So you'd have this weird state where like, okay, if you can enter a, like a global tournament or like a Grand Prix or a PT, then what do you get? You get like, an infinite collection or something. So then you get a bunch of people playing decks that they normally shouldn't be able to play, or you get a bunch of people not being able to play because they don't have a moto collection. So it's at odds with the tabletop experience, and I don't think that's a direction that Watsi really wants to go. But I mean, if they found something that you know neither of us have really thought of yet that kind of addresses that problem, I mean, I'm open to suggestions. Um, other esports have a better or a lower ramp speed when you're watching it and being able to learn what's going on. Like, but LOL is not the same complexity as Magic. I don't think that even close to as comprehensive as what's going on in MTG. So even if... I think League is more complex. You could... From a rules... From a rule set standpoint, like, when you do something in law, you know what's going to happen, right? Sometimes in Magic, I have cards in my deck that I've been playing for months, and then all of a sudden something comes up, and I'm like, yeah, I don't have no idea what's going to happen here. I need to call a judge. Like, and maybe that's me. I don't know the rules very well. I mean, I know them decently, but there's some weird triggers where it interacts with your opponent's card, and it's like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what happens now. Like, what if, uh, I, like, old, old days, like, humility, um... Plus, like, some other random uh, white enchantment that, like, gives your creatures lifelink afterwards or whatever, right? So they have lifelink? Well, humility says they lose all their abilities. Um, I, I st- to this day, I still don't understand exactly what happens in all, in all cases like that. I don't think LOL really has that, that going for it. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's the magic's strong point, right? It's a very complex game, and that's what really makes it sweet for a lot of people. Now, on the commentators... Uh, so I think I, I can't really speak to Gabby as I don't really know where she's coming from and what she's trying to accomplish as a commentator, but I can definitely speak to Marshall. I think that he's doing a good job. Um, he's not the commentator that's supposed to be analyzing the game state and giving you, you know, like that in-depth pro information. That's why they have people like LSV signed on full time, people like Reed and Huey coming in regularly. Right. Um, so they're supposed to fill that spot and give you that high level commentary. Um, and hiring LSV full-time as a commentator is definitely the first step to drive them in that direction. The other commentator is supposed to be for the noob. So when you say, like, you can't stand Marshall um, because, like, he just says ridiculous things and he seems like he doesn't know what's going on, he's saying those things because that's what people at home that are not good at magic yet are saying. So he's just driving LSV in the direction to answer those questions that people have in their head. So he does, he does get it. He does know what's going on. He's just acting stupid. And Rich does the same thing. In the beginning, I just used to want to slam my screen every time they would say something because I'm like, how are you guys so dumb? How can you not see what's going on? And then uh, I heard an interview with Rich where he was explaining the thought process on, on like, commentary um, and why they do it. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. So they're trying to get that person that doesn't understand exactly what's going on over that hump uh, because the game's so complex and we don't have all of those rich features uh, that the digital media has. So is it perfect? 
No. Of course we can always improve. Are they doing a decent job with what they have? Uh, yeah, for sure. Should they be cut? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that they, they're still needed. And there's definitely more casuals than there are not casuals in Magic, um, as seen by the insane EDH growth that we've seen over the last 10 years or whatever. So I, I, think, that, I think that those people need to stay, and I think they need to be catered to. And if we forget about them, then I think Magic's going to be in a worse place than it is. You're but, making a good uh, point. You're making a good point. I agree with you. I, I don't – when I say they need to be cut – they don't, they don't need to be eliminated from the broadcast. The current role they're filling is not what I would do because the biggest problem with me, and this is, this is something that I will limit this criticism to the Pro Tour coverage, there, there are play-by-play people, quote-unquote. They don't do their job. If you watch Cedric and Pat call a game of Magic, Cedric denotes every action that's taken, untap draw a card, do X, do Y. He doesn't skip an action. He's a play-by-play man. He understands how important that is to controlling the flow of the narrative. They don't do that on pro coverage. And it's mind-blowing to me because that's like sports casting 101. Like you have to narrate what's happening on the battlefield. You need to say step-by-step what's going on. And the fact that they don't sometimes makes it unwatchable for me. I remember I went to watch pro tour coverage, uh, the, the last top eight, and I'm, I'm watching a top eight match and the cards being played on the battlefield were not referenced until turn four of the game. That's insane. <laughs> That's absolutely insane and unacceptable on, on every level. And that shows me that they don't understand. You're right. Their role is to be play-by-play people. They don't have to know things inside and out, but they aren't fulfilling their role. And either they need to be trained to fulfill that role or someone else should be doing it. And, and to your point, uh, one of the people who I turned, I did a complete 180 on was Rich. I used to get frustrated with Rich. I couldn't listen to him. He drove me crazy. But I actually think he does his job incredibly well. And he does exactly what you're saying. He's there as a bridge. And those people are important. Um, but they can't be the ones doing the play-by-play. That's not the play-by-play person's job. And put a third person in the booth. Have a dedicated play-by-play person. Because there is enough down, downtime where there aren't actual actions being made. Where all of these things can be brought up. All these bridges can be brought in. but play-by-play has to come first and they yeah, I totally, I totally agree right i totally agree i think that they're definitely missing some things that that patrick and cedric started um and they should be porting those things over also like, they should just hire cedric play. cedric's the actual best and the fact I, that they haven't reached out to him i think is indefensible so totally yeah i don't know what the roadblock is there i don't know if it's <laughs> they feel like there's maybe some conflict of interest with scg or something but yeah i, I would know. love to see cedric in the booth for uh, for pro tours that would improve things by an order of magnitude for sure. Yep. And the rest of the teams would learn from him. I think a lot of these problems we wouldn't be arguing about anymore. Totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> All right. So we'll have to end, end the episode there. I mean, so I know Brian can still go on an episode. We'll, we'll have him again at some point for sure. I'm just going to sit here and talk to myself about uh, the state of Magic Esports for the next two hours. So. Uh, I'll shout out to Andy for suggesting uh, off of uh, Brian, Brian's idea, 12 people boost in 2017. <laughs> Maybe we'll see that. Um, so I, I think Douglas uh, in the MTG Hamilton uh, uh, Facebook group has asked how they could support uh, the show. Uh, there's many things that, that I can set up, but for now, just simply liking the YouTube uh, videos, subscribing to the YouTube channel, liking the Facebook page, uh, following us on Twitter. That's at First Strike Pod would go uh, a long way. So writing uh, KYT, a nice note. Or yeah, already a nice note. Uh, you guys did a fantastic job. I love the uh, enthusiasm. So uh, we'll see all of you uh, next week. Thanks, Brian, and, and thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 